Hey everybody, this is Jeff from Startup Stack with another Founder AMA episode from one of our Startup Stack Happy Hour AMAs. Last week, our Startup Stack Happy Hour was at Hot Italian in Midtown again and featured Adam Calzi. Adam has been an internet entrepreneur since 1995, starting five companies, including a few acquisitions, with the most recent one by Cisco, where he now leads developer relations for Cisco WebEx, helping startups reach enterprise with WebEx APIs and the WebEx Innovation Fund. We actually recorded this with an iPhone since I forgot my audio recorder, so it won't win any awards for production values, but there are a lot of great insights and advice that's very worthwhile. We'll pick up just as Adam is telling his background. Take a listen. In Sacramento, I organized the first uh, Tech Week uh, in Sacramento, uh, the first hackathon that Sacramento ever had. So I've been doing this a really long time. I'm really, really happy. Like, the thing I am most excited about tonight is that there are exactly two people here I recognize. <laughs> and in all this background of startup stuff, that there's all these people doing this that, that I don't even know who you guys are. This is awesome. I love this. This is great. Um, I ended up at Cisco through a series of acquisitions. My company got acquired. Uh, a group of us that were acquired spun out another company. That company got acquired by Cisco um, about three years ago. And I currently lead developer relations for uh, Cisco WebEx. So uh, helping developers that want to build things on the uh, WebEx platform make sure that they have what they need. And that's everything from evangelism and outreach to technical support to one-on-one uh, -on -one support to um, we run a $150 million investment fund where we invest in startups who are building things on top of Cisco um, and do that sort of thing. So that's my background. Um, got their first question over here. Do you have an online community? Do I, like personally, no, no. have an online community? I'm nearly, not nearly interesting. <laughs> Uh, so Cisco in general, absolutely. So um, you know, we're an 85,000 person company and like number 52 on the Fortune 100. So um, we have like 15 online communities that are really fragmented and uh, don't do it that way. Um, so yeah, I, there, there's uh, depending upon whether you're interested in in developer topics or uh, engineering topics or you know a variety of things. We've got a number of different communities. That. Uh, different one for every 15 okay. so so really kind of all over the map um, uh, there there is a website communities.cisco.com that is in the middle right now of transitioning off of Jive um, so we've been using Jive for the last few years um, and we are moving that on to I believe uh, IBM Connections so uh, big corporate software for a big corporate company. Um, frankly, unless you've got several million dollars to waste, I wouldn't bother um, with either of those. Find something free, easy like Discourse, and, uh, you know, open source, and, and run with that. Yeah. HP uses Yeah. Other questions? So, what should we expect in the next ten years? What should you expect in the next ten years? Um, I, I, I think that. Uh, Tech is going to get more and more personalized, and not in the way that uh, you know this artificial personalization where you know, your friends recommended this and, and do this. But I, I think we're going to start seeing a lot more, especially as AI and machine learning starts coming up, along with what our friends start seeing, along with all of the data that exists about you as a person, your habits, your behaviors, everything that you do. I think we're going to start seeing a lot more of, of those things combining to where uh, a a marketer will be able to target and say, I know, there's the famous story about uh, Target where they were able to predict that somebody was having a baby when, based on the things that they were buying. 
I, I think that's going to become commonplace, and the predictions are going to be a lot more uh, accurate and a lot more common um, and a lot more accessible to to everybody. And it's going to be become a lot more accessible. And it's not just marketing and targeting and who these these advertising people know what I am doing and watching everything that I'm doing. But tech will start to be able to start anticipating your needs and making suggestions to you about what you want to do instead of the other way around. And I, I see this as becoming kind of the next frontier. And it, it's everything from uh, your mobile phone, like right now, I need to set an alarm for 6.30 in the morning. Well, instead your mobile phone will say, hey, you need to set an alarm for 6.30 in the morning tomorrow. And it will let you know and give you these things ahead of time and, and become a lot more of an assistant to you and, and anticipating what you're going to want rather than you forcing them to, you know, having you guess and, and ask for it. So Adam, I read an interview of you from a few years ago, I think, where they asked you about, you know, founding, you, know, you founded five startup companies and kind of what did you learn? And one of the things had to do with not going it alone and how having partners was so important. Sure. Could you talk uh, about that? So for those in the back that didn't hear, I'll start trying to remember to answer, to repeat these. Um, years ago, I gave an interview in which I said, don't go it alone when you're starting a company. Have, have partners, have, have people. Um, who here has a startup company? Okay, uh, keep your hand up if that startup company has been around for less than three years. Keep your hand up if this is your only source of income, if this is your gig, like you don't have another job. Okay, so. The people that have dropped their hand with that last question, you don't actually have a startup. You might in the future, it may become one. You've got a side hustle right now, and that's okay. Like, you don't have to, like, your identity doesn't have to be, I have a startup and I'm a startup founder. If you've got another job and you've got another source of income, that's your income, that's your job, that's what you need to be focused on. The thing that you're doing at night and hustling along and learning is what will eventually maybe become your startup and become your company. And it's really important in either case that you have somebody else to work on this with. Especially if you're that person that's sitting there and I'm working on this on the side, and you come home at night and you work on this, your idea, I guarantee you, is terrible. And I know this because all of my ideas were terrible. All of the ideas of the most successful startup founders that are out there are terrible. I was talking to, to Jeff earlier tonight about um, uh, the early days of a uh, local startup up in Auburn called Riskalyze. Um, and Aaron, uh, the CEO and founder of Riskalyze, was a friend of mine, and we were discussing the, uh, Jeff and I were talking about the, the early startup of, of Riskalyze, and their idea was to take this technology and sell it to individual investors. And they were gonna sell this idea of, of managing your risk and coming up with your risk to individual investors. And it wasn't going well. They finally pivoted that idea and managed through a couple of different tries to come up with, well, who they need to sell this to is the, the investment consultants, the, the advisors, and let those advisors use that to manage the risk and help the, their clients manage risk. His idea wasn't very good to begin with. The, the nugget, the core of what he was doing was great, but the actual, here's what we're going to build and who we're going to build it for, turned out to not be very good. And if he was doing this by himself, first of all, Nobody else would be sitting there telling him, your idea is pretty bad. We need to do this differently. We need to change things and, and do stuff differently. But the other thing that would have happened if he was doing this by himself is when that idea proved to be difficult and proved to be something that wasn't working out, it would be really very easy to get discouraged. It would be really easy to sit there and go, well, you know, I don't 
don't know what I'm doing. I can't get this done. I can't, I can't succeed here. And I know this because that's happened to me. I, I started a company. I was a sole founder of the company. Um, we didn't do well. I got really discouraged really fast and, and ended up bailing out on the idea. Now, this is one of those things that that was 10 years ago. It's starting to become interesting now. Um, maybe we'll relaunch it uh, sometime in the future. But if, if you're doing it by yourself, not only do you have the problem of getting discouraged and having nobody there to do it to help you with it, but also the hard things that you have to do are a lot easier when you've got somebody else to share that load. The things that you're terrible at, your partner may be good at. The things that you're good at, your partner may be terrible at. I can't sell. Like, I can sell. Like, you, you bring me a prospect, I can sell to them all day long. Going out and finding that prospect and landing them and cold calling people that don't really want to talk to me, I am terrible at it. I don't like to do it. I don't want to do it. I'm going to be bad at it. So I need to find somebody that can do those things well. If you think about those of you that are in a, a relationship, marriage, dating, whatever, and think about the places that, that you're awful and your partner is great in that relationship and that makes things work, like, if I were single, I would be very, very, very poor and have a terrible credit rating because I would forget to pay the bills like every single month. I'd be thrown out of my house because I just totally forget to do it. My wife, awesome at it. She's got it down, she gets the page, she takes care of it. She's really good at that kind of thing. So you need that certain thing in a business relationship. You got a question here? Oh yeah, what was the idea of Oh, geez, first startup. Um, so my first startup was actually a consulting company. Um, we did consulting for um, intranets and helped uh, large companies figure out how to organize the information inside their internal networks. Um, it was fine, it did well. Um, consulting companies don't scale well. They don't become big businesses. They continue to be young, pay a salary, and that's about it, and I wanted more. So we went, uh, went beyond that. Another question? Yep. Don't look behind you. <laughs> uh, I think you hit upon this earlier. The timing of user acceptance beyond separate offers. This is sure. really one of the most critical things that determines the success of a startup. And this is absolutely wrong crowd to talk about because we're all early adopters. We all love technology. We love new Absolutely. Ideas are a dime a dozen. They're everywhere. Um, 
and you can de-risk that. So every element of risk you remove for an investor increases the likelihood that you're going to get funding and the the uh, cost of that money, um, reduces your cost of that money. So, you know, I've got an idea, that's great. I've built my idea. Hey, you've shown the investor that you can actually go out and build something. You've got users for your idea. That's even better. You have paid users for your idea. That's even better. And it's getting to that point, getting to those first paid customers um, that can be great. But one of the things you really gotta be wary of is that you need to pay attention to those first paid customers, those first paid users. But you don't wanna pay too much attention to those first paid users. Because these are people who were either dumb enough or crazy enough to buy a product that wasn't frankly very good yet, doesn't really know where it's going to go, probably isn't going to be the same product or company a year from now, and they made the bet on that company. And they may just be making the bet on you as the entrepreneur. I really like what you're doing. I know you are going to be a success. But you've got a couple of problems there. One, those customers may have unreasonable demands where I need this, 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 and this. And that's not actually where your company needs to go and where your product needs to go because Right now you have a market of one, and that customer is your only customer. And if you're building just for that customer, you're a consulting shop, not a product company. So it's understanding that you have a product vision and you need to build things within that product vision. And if, you're, if your early customer is asking for things that um, are in the direction of your product vision, by all means, prioritize for them. They're the ones that are paying the bills right now. Um, prioritize for them and, and build those things. But recognize that just because a customer asks for it doesn't mean that the 10th customer or the 100th customer or the 1,000th customer is going to ask for it. And your job as an entrepreneur in the early days in designing that product is to guess and predict what that 1,000th customer is going to want. Not what's going to get me to five customers, but what's going to get me to 10,000 customers. Because what is going to get you to those five customers isn't the same as what's going to get you to those 10,000 customers. Other questions? Uh, this is said for an uh, entrepreneur. So which skill set, which skills are the most important? How important do that is to be networking? So uh, which skills are most important for an entrepreneur and how high up in that is networking? Um, probably the primary skill important for an entrepreneur is stupidity. Um, you have to be dumb enough to try this, um, and dumb enough to stick with it, and dumb enough to realize that it's not working and to keep doing it. Um, or stubborn, one or the other, it's probably stupidity. Perseverance, now it's stupidity, um, it's insanity, um, it's, it's, a, it's a dream that you, you have a vision for what the world should look like, and it doesn't look like that right now. And the only way to make it look like that is to have your product in place. It, who here wants to be an entrepreneur because they've seen Mark Zuckerberg is the third richest person in the world, and Jeff Bezos is the richest person in the world, and this is the way I'm going to get rich? Because I can guarantee you, you will make more money in your lifetime. If all of you go out and get a job in investment banking right now, this group will collectively make way more money in their lifetime than one of you as an entrepreneur. This is not a path to riches. This is a path to, I can't accept how the world is today, and I need to fix that. There is a problem that exists, and I need to fix it. You know, how important is networking? Um, I am not a fan of the concept of networking. 
Uh, I, I don't remember who it was that was contacting me about this event tonight. They said, I'm going to grab your bio off of LinkedIn. I was like, yeah, well, good luck with that. I don't <laughs> exist on LinkedIn. Um, I don't attend networking events. I don't go and talk to people. I don't go do that kind of stuff. Having a network is crazy important. Networking is not. But the difference is, is a network is an authentic thing. It's the people that you have legitimately connected with, that you have talked to and, and made a relationship with over time. It's not how many business cards can I collect at the startup happy hour on Tuesday night at Hot Italian. Um, it's not going and meeting as many people as I can. It's developing deep, meaningful relationships with people and not knowing how those relationships are going to turn out and how they're going to benefit you and what's in it for you. It's, it's making sure that you are providing more value to the other person than you're getting from them. Constantly giving, constantly being involved, constantly making sure that you are helping them and eventually something will come up where they're going to help you. It really wasn't that profound. <laughs> service-oriented business with a startup idea. Because startup yeah. seems to me is like you're pouring your effort into building something and you anticipate that demand to be there right. several years down the road. Whereas a service is something that you help, you help somebody to do what they do. So the question is, I have trouble marrying the concept of a service-oriented business with a startup. Startup is a product to me. It's, it's a, a thing that you're building ahead of the demand and you're hoping people come and buy it. Um, that's definitely true. So, uh, I mean, a, a startup, like I said, is is an idea in trying to prove that a company should exist. And so, even a consulting company early on in a service-oriented business is a startup. You don't know that people actually want that service. You don't know how to deliver that service. You don't know um, how to charge for that service. You don't know how to scale that service. You don't know that who your your market is for the service and who's going to want to buy it and who's who is going to be a good customer and who's not going to be a good customer. So there's still all of those kinds of things. There's a difference though, again, like you mentioned, between a product and a, and a service-oriented company. Um, if you're doing, if every single one of your customers you're doing a different thing for over and over and over again, um, you probably, you're a service-oriented customer company. But if you're providing a service that it's the same service or variations on that service repeatedly to different customers, your service is your product. Think about um, a heating and air conditioning service that comes in and uh, and fixes the air, the heating on your on your house. You know, they may come and they've got this idea where I'm just going to come and I'm going to fix the air conditioning and whatever's wrong, I'm going to troubleshoot it, I'm going to figure it out. But then they also create maybe a product which is a you know for 50 bucks I'll come and tune up your air conditioning. And now that's a product. It's a service that they're providing. They're coming and they're doing something for you. It's only scaling as far as they have the number of people come out and actually perform that air conditioning service and, and do those. But a lot of the ancillary things around that, um, the marketing, I don't have to market it differently every time. I don't have to sell it different, different every time. I don't have to quote it differently every time. I, I, can, I can create a website where somebody can come and schedule and say, I want this. I know how long it's gonna take me. I know what materials I'm going to need. I know how much it's going to cost. I know what I'm, what exactly what's gonna go into that. Even though I'm providing a service, it's a repeatable service delivered as a product. Would you consider Airbnb, Uber, and Lyft services? No, um, Uber, Airbnb, and Lyft, would I consider them services? No, they're, they're marketplaces. Um, so Uber, Airbnb, and, and Lyft are 
a, a way of connecting a market need and suppliers of a market need with a consumer of that market need who needs it. Um, but in addition to that, they also had to create that market need. So the, the marketplace that we see as being big startups and big tech companies, what they actually had to do is they had to create a demand for this. Like, there was a whole lot of people that went, I'd really like to stay in someone else's bedroom. <laughs> that sounds like fun. I mean, you know, they might have wanted to stay in someone else's bedroom, but not pay for the privilege. Um, so, you know, I don't want to, I want to go to the airport. I wonder if I can get some random stranger to drive me to the airport and I'll give them 20 bucks. There wasn't a whole lot of need and a whole lot of demand for that. So when Uber, Lyft, Airbnb, um, you know, countless others, RV Share, Odesk, others have done is they've said, here are people that have an excess capacity that exists. Uh, desks in, in office buildings, whatever. And I'm gonna create that, take that excess capacity, I'm gonna go out and convince consumers and end users that they need that excess capacity. And then buying that excess capacity is an alternative to how they're doing things now, which is renting a taxi or getting a hotel or, or going after someone who's created that capacity for the purpose of selling it. And now, after I've convinced those consumers of that, now they're gonna buy through me and I'm gonna connect that market and put those together. Yep. Thank you. 
huge fan of work-life balance. Like, if you work for a company and they're asking you to stay after six or come in on weekends or whatever, unless that was like, look, I work weekends and I have Tuesdays and Thursdays off or something like that. But if it's just, we need you to work extra hard and do this extra stuff and, and, and you don't have the opportunity to like take off and take the kid to a field trip and that kind of stuff, your employer sucks. And, and you should really kind of look for other opportunities and, and look for other things to do. I'm a big, huge fan of work-life balance. But if you're the founder, the startup is your life. It is your work, it is your life, it is both. There is no balance there. At least until it's off the ground, because in the early days, a startup exists only because of the sheer force of your personality and force of your will. And if you're not pushing it and driving it constantly all the time, the startup is not going to succeed, um, it, at least not as a standalone company. Because there's always going to be, well, I, I can't take the sales call because I've got a meeting at work. I can't, uh, you're selling software to someone, you're selling a product to someone, imagine if you can't talk to a supplier because you have a day job. That, that means really, really hard to do. So, you know, how do you know when to do it? When you can't convince yourself that you can do anything else. Like, this is, this is so important to me, I just need to make it happen. Start here. years ago, my answer would have been different. Um, so we started out the, the startup community, we hold dinners, and, and the entrepreneurs would all invite each other, like bring people over and we'd have dinner, and like six of us would show up to dinner. And, and we knew like 10 of us total. There just wasn't that much here as far as a startup scene and the entrepreneurs and the, the people involved in it. That's really, really changing a lot. And the, you know, the fact that all of you are here, the fact that we have, what, nine co-working facilities in Sacramento now? Um, There's 20 in the region. 20 in the region, okay. <laughs> I, I remember in 2003 when somebody approached me and said, I want to start a co-working facility in Sacramento. I said, you're insane, have fun. No, I'm not helping. I'm not getting involved in this because that's going to fail. Um, it did, but the next one didn't. The one after that didn't. We're seeing there's a lot more support infrastructure. Things like one million cups. Things like we we have we have a lot of things happening in the region where where I see startups that are becoming successful. Fifteen years ago, if I wanted to hire an engineer to work at a startup, it was nearly impossible because nobody knew what a startup was. All the engineers I was going to hire either worked for Intel or HP or the state of California, and their idea of a hard day's work was starting at around 10 and ending around 3. Um, you know, and, and so this is really, really starting to change. We're getting a lot more people in the region that have seen what can happen. We've seen startups that are getting funding from outside companies and then choosing to stay here. That's the really interesting thing to me. It's not the fact that there was the, the announcement a few weeks ago where some electric car startup was moving to Sacramento and they were gonna bring all 10 of their employees here and you know we had to give them a million dollars to get them to do that. Yay! <laughs> or Engine Yard. So the big, huge hosting company, Engine Yard, headquartered in San Francisco. Anyone familiar with them? 
Do you know they started here? They were founded in Sacramento. Uh, one of the founders has moved back here um, and lives here now, uh, Lance Wally, Charge uh, of So, So they started here. They got BC funding. The BC said, so what address in San Francisco is going to be your office? And they went, well, we're going to stay in Sacramento. They went, no, you're not. Where are you moving in San Francisco? It wasn't an option. Um, the, the BC funded companies I had, I was the sole employee in Sacramento. We had our headquarters in Emeryville, we had development offices in Portland, and I spent every week on an airplane and a train circling between the, the, the three cities. It wasn't an option to be here and get outside funding. But now we have companies that are not just getting funding from local funders, but are getting funding from outside. As I splash my beer all over the place. Um, <laughs> We have companies that are getting funding from outside, that their customers are outside. And you know, getting funding isn't like the measure of success for a company. It, it is a means to an end. You can have a very successful company without getting any funding at all. You can fund, customer money is the cheapest money. If you can fund yourself on customer money, do it. Don't take VC, don't take institutional financing at all. Don't get a loan, don't get anything. That's a really expensive way to get money. Um, you're, you're selling big chunks of your company to get VC funding. You can keep it all and have customers. It's way, way better. But so we're seeing these companies that have success. You know, Dial Source, Joshua was uh, originally scheduled to speak tonight. I think he has a customer in Sacramento. Sacramento Kings are his customer. As far as I, I believe, every other one of his customers is outside the area. That's a big deal. That is not something that we saw 15, 20 years ago, that a tech startup in Sacramento would get funding, get customers, get partners, get whatever from outside the region. It's huge that we're seeing this. I, I'm, I'm very bullish on what is happening um, locally. I know of some people that are looking at potentially raising a VC fund. Um, with the express purpose of, we're just gonna focus on Sacramento companies. And you know, this fund is probably five to 10 years out from making real investments and doing things. But the fact that someone's even thinking about that and thinking that this is a viable option, and that there's going to be, that, that in the next decade, we're gonna see enough startup activity, enough talent, and enough companies come out of this region, that that's an option is huge. It was a, yeah. What is your, what is my investment criteria? Um, so the the money that I invest is so the, the Cisco Innovation Fund, the WebEx Innovation Fund. It's a strategic uh, fund designed to drive um, usage and innovation on top of our platform. So my investment criteria is way different than what you see from a um, a fund that's that's simply looking for a return. I'm looking for very strategic uses. I'm looking for things that are going to drive our platform into uh, places that it's not at today, that's going to grow the size of the ecosystem, it's gonna grow the number of players that are involved in it. So um, that's a lot different than uh, a, a typical angel or VC um, investor where their philosophy is going to be more about uh, looking at returns. Um, so if I'm looking at more than just returns, I'm looking at uh, founder. I'm looking at good founder, quality of vision. Um, I'm looking at their understanding of a market 
and how big in general the customer size is and how big that market could be and, and how big it could grow to. Like, how excited are they about these consumers that are doing something, these customers that are going to buy, and how big do they think those customers could be? Um, but, you know, right now it's all a strategic kind of thing. There was another hand earlier. Why do you think why do I think most startups fail? Um, because it's hard. Um, I mean, most businesses in general fail because if you have to look at business in general, one of the things that shocks me all the time is you drive down the street and you see a new restaurant has opened up. You're like, ooh, that restaurant looks pretty cool. I'll have to stop in there someday. And next month, you're like, oh yeah, that's right, that restaurant. And the next month, oh yeah, that's right, that's restaurant. And the next month, you drive by and the restaurant's gone and closed. And we were around for three months. I didn't even have time to go, oh yeah, I'm going to go to that place. I, I, I hadn't built it into my habit yet that I'm going to go. That The restaurant owners didn't give themselves enough runway to survive long enough to get the customer base that they need. And, and that's probably the biggest reason that startups fail in general, is they just didn't give themselves enough cash runway, they didn't have enough money, they didn't have enough time to survive before they failed. The reasons for that can be they're spending too much, they didn't have enough to begin with, they were overly optimistic about how quickly they'd grab customers and bring it in. Um, you know, with, with like a restaurant or something, I like to tell people, you should plan on having six months without a single customer before, and make sure that you've got enough money to survive that long. It's gonna take you that long to bring those customers in. Same, similar thing with a startup. It's gonna take you some time to build the product, attract the customer, figure out that you built the wrong product, change your product, figure out that it's the wrong customer, figure out that the guy that's paid, he was just a real jerk, and you don't want him as a customer anymore, and this is not the market you thought you were gonna be in. Um, you figure out that, hey, I've got this idea, I'm gonna sell this software to big business or enterprise or, or schools or government, and then you find out that, oh yeah, their buying cycles are 18 months. Like, from the time you talk to them to the time that you get a check, you're a year and a half out, and I have nine months of money and it's gone. So it, it takes some time to figure those things out, that you're doing the wrong thing, and you're doing it too slowly and burning money too fast. And, and that's that's the cause of startup death, it's just burning money faster than you're bringing it in and not, not recognizing that early enough. What are the founder and team qualities that you look for as an investor? Founder and team qualities that I look for. Um, so one of the things that I want is a, a, a strength of vision. They know what they want to do and how they want the world to be. It's ne not necessarily dependent upon what their first product or idea is, but this first product, this first idea, is step one toward making, to, to reforming the world in, in my in my image and what I want it to be. Uh, it's also a, a a uniqueness of ability. So I want to know that the founding team that's doing this is uniquely suited to do this. That you know, okay, so why couldn't I back four other random people? And, and they'd be more effective and, and better at this. What is your unique quality that makes you uniquely suited to do this? What is your back? If, if you were coming up and saying, um, you know, I've noticed that uh, 
the, the online space for uh, lawn care and, and creating uh, landscapers and having landscapers come to your house and mow your lawn is really just, there's nothing there. I think there's a huge market opportunity for it. I'm gonna go attack that. And you've never been a landscaper, hired a landscaper, mowed a lawn, touched a lawnmower. Um, it doesn't matter how big and interesting that opportunity is, you don't understand the market well enough to go out here. And so I want people that have a unique understanding and unique positioning in that market to go out here. So if you look at other fields, um, sports, music, you know, or movie industry, you can spot these successful people early on in their age, and they have the talent, right? If they're not coordinated, if they don't have those outcomes and it doesn't matter how hard they work, they're not going to be successful. But it's very hard to characterize the, the, the traits of a startup founder. What, what are your thoughts on that? So, if you look at sports or et cetera, and you see, you, you can easily recognize the, the talents and the traits that make somebody, we're gonna make something successful and, and pick them out. How do you do that as a startup founder? Um, I question the general premise. So, look at sports and the number of people that get signed, um, like, out of school and never go anywhere and are a total bust. Or the number of big free agent signings that happen and they totally fail. Your past performance in a particular role, when you change to a new role, doesn't uh, doesn't really affect your future performance. If, if all of the, the data and all of the money that's available to say a professional baseball team, and they still make bad signings, um, how are you going to do any better? You're not. It, it's really about fit in, in team and understanding. If you're, if you're looking for a founder, a co-founder, if you're looking for a company to work for, you're looking for an employee to hire, you're looking for anything like that, it's all about finding the person that fits in that you can work with and build a highly effective team with. Um, from an investment perspective, it's all about making lots and lots of small bets and knowing that you're going to be wrong at 90% of them uh, and waiting for the 10% the to, to do better. Well, let me rephrase it, maybe. Um, it's hard for someone to say, I have what it takes to be successful at a startup. Yeah. Unless I put four or five uh, you know, years of my time, then I, perhaps I would know. But it's pretty easy for a future athlete to know, this is not for me, but just because I don't have the in it. So I don't right. know if there, you know, there's something that's innate, more talent, or you just have to work hard enough and maybe make some something happen, hopefully. It, so, I, I think that just comes down to pure perseverance. There are people that, when something gets difficult, they give up, they, they quit, they don't fight their way through, they don't... If, if you're the type of person who's not going to fight for the things you believe in, to the point that everyone else thinks you're absolutely out of your mind and insane, then you're probably not have a long career as a as an entrepreneur. Um, if you have more ideas and energy than anyone else around you, um, that certainly helps. Uh, but there's it, it's more than just a willingness to work hard 
or I've got great ideas. It's it's a combination of a lot of different things. And early in a startup founder career, it's you've got to be good at recruiting. You've got to be good at talking to customers. You've got to be good at building a product. You've got to be good at predicting what is going to happen and recognizing that, that things that are changing, how those winds are shifting and, and getting ahead of them. Um, you, you've got to kind of be good at a lot of things and great at a couple. Um, and it almost doesn't matter what the graded a couple are, as long as those are things that are relevant to your company. Like, if you're great at singing and you're not building a music company, then it probably doesn't matter that you're great at singing. But um, it's there's a reason that startup that, that investors invest in companies that fail constantly because nobody knows how to recognize, including the entrepreneur, whether they're going to be good at this or not. You all think that you're going to be fantastic at this and you're going to succeed and you're going to survive. And statistically, like in this room, one person is going to succeed and survive. But you all think you're that person. Like you're all looking at everyone else and going, yeah, these guys are idiots. <laughs> it's me. Um, I think what you said earlier makes sense. It's uh, stupidity and it's, it's stupidity. <laughs> it's just being too stupid to quit is really what it comes down to. When did uh, WebEx start and what's the past, present, and future of collaboration? Jeez, uh, when did WebEx start the past, present, and future of collaboration? Well, that's, uh, so WebEx started in uh, mid-90s, mid to late-90s. Um, I don't know, I wasn't there, I don't remember. Um, WebEx was acquired by Cisco in the early 2000s. Um, it's been a Cisco product ever since. Um, they, WebEx did go public and then was acquired by Cisco after going public. Um, I just joined three years ago through, through, I wasn't part of WebEx at acquisition. I was, no, no, no. I was part of another company that got acquired and brought into WebEx. Um, so, I mean, past, present, and future, the, the future of collaboration is uh, video everywhere, ubiquitous. Um, again, anticipating your needs, you not having to, like, if you've joined a conference call and gone, what is this nine digit number I've got to enter and I entered it five wrong five times, I've done this. the future of collaboration is that stuff goes away. Your phone, your computer knows that it's time for you to be on a call and you join the call. Or better yet, you walk into a conference room and the conference room knows that you are there, that you have a call right now and this is how to connect to it, and it just does it for you. Um, you know, that's the future of collaboration. Um, the, the future of collaboration is I can talk to the people I need to talk to at any time without having to figure out how to talk to them. And, and the system's just gonna know how, to, how that, that conversation should happen. Great, two more questions. Last two questions before we wrap it up. When Aaron Klein was uh, starting, or when he was founding Riskwise, at what point did he realize he needed to pivot from that, that individual investment market to the Yeah, so when advisor? did Aaron Klein recognize that he needed to pivot from the individual investor to the, the advisor? Um, and when is, was he funded before he made that, that decision? And was he funded before he made that decision? So uh, you have to ask Aaron for sure on the when did he realize that. Uh, yes, he was funded. Um, he did have funding. He did have uh, at least seed funding. He might have had a Series A by then. I don't remember uh, which. I, I remember talking to him when he was making the change, but I don't remember where he was at with that. Um, and it was not a like an overnight aha. I need to do this. Um, 
you know, based on the conversations that I had with him over this time, it was a process. Like, he realized that, uh, wow, selling to consumers is hard and really expensive, and if I want enough people to be aware of my product and willing to spend money on it, I'm gonna have to do a lot of advertising. I'm gonna have to do a lot of consumer advertising, and that is god-awful expensive. But there's a whole lot less you know, maybe if I can reach like E-Trade and convince them to buy, then I only have to sell it to five people. And then all consumers get it. But wait, what if those five people don't buy it? Now I don't have anyone. So what I need is, is a smaller market than every consumer on the planet, and a bigger market than the five big investment platforms. Um, and so I, I think that was part of his thought process into landing on on advisors, and part of it was, was I'm sure, frankly, advisors were coming to him trying to buy it for their customers. Now, if you have people asking you to to, to sell you their product, sell, sell them your product, and your product doesn't fit, like you don't have a product for them, but you have more people asking you for that product than you have normally in the sales process, um, maybe you're selling to the wrong people, and it's time to, to look at that new market experience. Who is not a Anyone that's not asked? I got two hands up for people that have asked. Nobody who has asked the question has. Okay. Oh, right there, we got one. Uh, Woohoo! What do you look for when considering whether to advise a company? What do I look for when I'm considering whether to advise a company? So, I mean, advising a company is very much a get any monetary benefit out of it, I don't get, it's like, not like a job that I've got to go do this, I'm not getting a whole, it's, it's, I'm getting a personal benefit out of it, I'm enjoying it, and so, how do I choose to advise a company is flat out, I'm going to enjoy it. Um, years ago, I set a rule that I would only advise companies that were located where I'm located, um, and that's for two reasons, I want to make my, my, my neighborhood better, and I want to be involved in that, like, Helping somebody that's in Colorado was great, but how is that helping grow my local economy and grow my local scene? Um, but also, I really like to be able to sit down with the people I'm advising and, and have beers with them and have coffee with them and have lunch with them and really sit and enjoy uh, talking to them and talking to them face to face. Um, so my primary thing, like filter right off the top, if you're not local, I'm not interested in advising you. Um, and then it's gotta be just something that I click with the founder and I want to help and, and they have a hole that I can assist with. They've got, my my knowledge and my, my advice um, can fit in with what they need. Um, they also need to be receptive to the advice, um, but uh, conversely, I don't want them to be somebody that will blindly follow with my advice. 90% of my advice is going to be stupid and wrong, including tonight. Like, if I told you something, I'm probably wrong, because most people are probably wrong all the time. And so, your job as a founder is to figure out who is wrong, when they're wrong, what's right, what's right for you, and go after that, and listen to that advice.